0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features a conversation between Rabbi Tzvi Hirschfeld and Rabbi Dr. Howard Marcos on Pabashat Bechukotai. For the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbi Zvi Hirschfeld and Rabbi Dr. Howard Marcos.
1: Everyone. We are discussing Parshat Bechukotai. We're going to finish off the book of Leviticus, of Vayikra. Very exciting. A little Chazak at the end. Uh, and it's my privilege to be here with Rabbi Dr. Howard Marcos, whose greatest claim to fame is that Howard was my Roshe Da Camperman, Wisconsin, a mere 40 years ago. Oh Closing it in on 41, Howard. Uh, Howard, of course, was only four at the time, he was very precocious. A uh, wonderful Hashanah for a four-year-old in particular, I have to give him credit. But in addition to that, he's also a master teacher of Tanakh here at Pardes and other places and has a lot to share with us. So we're really looking forward. Howard, welcome and glad you could be here.
2: Thank you, Tzvi. I can still call you Tzvi now, right?
1: Yes, you can. My English name will remain a secret. <laughs> yes.
2: So you mentioned Parshat B'Chukotai, the end of, parasha, uh, of Sefer Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, and it is noteworthy in my read because it is one of two places in our Torah that has a tochacha, a reproof, an execration, as you will, warnings to the children of Israel of those dire consequences that will befall them if they choose to disobey the divine commandments. The other one is in uh, Sefer Devarim in the 28th chapter. And in both cases, our tradition makes it clear that there is a matter of reward and punishment. If we do what God tells us to do, there will be reward. And if we refuse or if we rebel, we should expect punishment to come our way.
1: You know, it's funny. This is almost—it's like the uh, what they call the third rail of uh, rabbinic talks, right? The second paragraph of Shema, uh, which also has reward and punishment. Like most of us here, I'm thinking. I think I would avoid being a Chumash teacher just to not have to teach those themes because they are so loaded, so heavy, so scary, uh, so theologically challenging, and yet here you are, a brave soul, uh, ready to take it on.
2: Well, we'll talk a little bit later about how we, in our day, listen to this two-pronged approach of, if you do well, then good, and if you don't, then there will be consequences. I know that my kids, when they would hear me say to them, you know there are consequences to what you're you're doing right now, that scared them.
1: It worked? Yeah. Okay, so maybe that's a clue into what's supposed to be happening here. Could be. All right. let's find out. Go ahead and walk us through.
2: Well, what intrigues me in this section of uh, Parshat Bukhu Kotai, specifically chapter 26, is that the uh, kinds of punishments that are threatened by the Divine are very very specific and very unusual and the language that's being used is really uh, something for me that is noteworthy. I also want to mention that the language that's found in our Torah is very similar to what is known as the vassal treaties of King Esarhaddon who reigned in Assyria in northern Mesopotamia which is today's modern day Iraq in the seventh century before the common era so King Esarhaddon would conquer territory and strike deals with the kings of lands which he would conquer, turning them, turning, turning them into what we call vassals. These vassal kings would then enjoy the protection of the Assyrian king and his military on the condition that they would agree to terms and laws that would be stipulated by the king himself.
1: So what you're saying is when this layout here, with uh, and I'm sure you'll walk us through some of the specifics of pestilence or loss in war or even divine punishment, right? Uh, There are echoes or real patterns of this is a normal language that the conquering king in offering some kind of treaty, an arrangement, an agreement with who they've conquered. Uh, And so in this instance, God is our conquering king, and we are being invited, you're saying, to be his vassals. Exactly.
2: Exactly. And please also note that the kings of the ancient Near East oftentimes considered themselves as also God. And so the the crossover between king and God for the the, uh, king like Esarhaddon and for us calling our God king, king of all kings, so there is that combination of exactly as you explained it, the pattern of you are, God is saying to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, you are my vassal, here is the treaty that I am putting on you, your agreement is now forthcoming.
1: Which sort of, it, it, on the one hand it makes God very human, but what you're saying is it made God very relatable. People hearing, if we follow the text, and this is Moshe speaking to the people, or however we, we, we get this, uh, this statement. You're saying this is not a language that people would have looked at with astonishment the way maybe some modern readers might.
2: Precisely. The echoes, they could have said, I've heard this before. It was what was out there. The stock phrases, and we're going to look at a couple of them now. These phrases of what will happen if they don't agree, they are, uh, it's, it's like every, uh, the kings had a, like a file card set. And they would rip through them and say what do i want to say to them and they pull one out and that's when everybody knew and let me give you an example if i can please so um, what happens if a farming community is a part of the punishment the receivers of the punishment if they don't follow the dictates of the sovereign power well if we look at chapter 26 of vaikra verse 19 we have the answer that the torah provides in verse 26 God, as you said through Moshe says, vishavarti et ge'on et shmechem kabarzel, et God says, if you don't obey me, I will break your proud glory. I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper. Well, iron skies do not bring rain and copper land does not yield crops. So there could be nothing worse for a farmer than hard soil and no rain. That is the ultimate punishment that a farmer could receive.
1: You hear that and you think, I'm going to die.
2: That's right, because that is my life for a farmer. Well, I want to tell you, Tzvi, in the Treaty of Esarhaddon that I mentioned before, we discover that if the people do not obey, the king invokes the gods, small g, and says, may God X turn your soil into iron. And just as rain does not fall from a copper sky, may there come neither rain nor dew upon your fields. Wow, it's
1: like a quote for quote.
2: Isn't that amazing? Really amazing. So, and it's not, it's not just there. There are other places where we, if we look closely, we can see that the people are going to say, I hear you loud and clear because I know exactly what that metaphor or that simile means, and it, it's, it's very clear. And it's also literally what was important at that time. It really touched on the essence of who the people were either traveling or in cities in the ancient Near East.
1: So just to take this parallel uh, in this direction, what is the motivation of the vassal to rebel against the king in the ancient Near East, and then how do you think that projects on the Israelite people? Because the text, I guess, assumes there's going to be a motivation to rebel. If there's no motivation to rebel, I don't have to warn you over and over again. So I'm just wondering, in your mind, how do you understand the parallel in that direction? Why the vassal state might want to rebel, and then why the Torah assumes the Jewish people are going to want to rebel?
2: Well, a, a, a number of elements that are about this rebellion are, for example, choosing another side. So if the people, um, in the Israelite people, choose another god that is to say, another benefactor. That's the essence of rebellion. Uh, Idolatry is what we're talking about there. and Laziness, that is to say, not paying the taxes, not paying the due that is coming to the king or to God, not uh, uh, doing that which is a part of the written treaty or the proclaimed treaty, just like ignoring it is also... Uh, subject to this kind of punishment. So there are different ways that the people can say, um, you're not for me. And God is saying, no, I want your total loyalty. That's essential here.
1: And you can almost imagine maybe paralleling again, when you lose the war, or you see that mighty army on your border, you're ready to sign anything right? I'll pay any tax. I'll do whatever you say. It's all yeah. for you. Uh, in the same way God appears at Mount Sinai with thunder and fire, and, and he just took us out of Egypt. We're like, wow, you are really powerful. We will sign on. Do You think there's also a parallel that as that memory retreats, that the greater the likelihood that people will now as you say get lazy or feel a little rebellious
2: you're asking a good question i have issues with this particular section of the execration of the showing up at the end of this whole uh, book this whole command to build the mishkan i think that god could possibly be responding to the uh the fall of the israelites when they resorted to uh, having Aaron build a golden calf that God is saying, you know, I was there in the Mishkan, and I was available to you, and what did you do? You rebelled, and I have to make sure, in response to that kind of behavior, I want, a, I want you to follow my rules. So there is a little bit of a reaction, as it were, by the divine, saying, I need to remind them how important it is to remain loyal.
1: So meaning it may, it it ended up here because that's where we took it. Yeah. Right? In other words, if we had been, we maybe were even offered the opportunity to be loving partners, but it was our own inability to build that relationship that led to this type of, this type of relationship.
2: I think that's a good way of putting it, Svi.
1: And how does this line up? You know, there are earlier parts of Vayikra, you know, be holy because I am holy, separate yourself because I separated myself, love your neighbor because I am God. Th- that, that relationship of power and threat are not present in other parts of the book. And yet here, it's such a tough way to finish.
2: Uh, you say finish. I think the children of Israel and God are in the middle. And so therefore, this is a reminder even though there is the uh, the holiness code be holy because I the Lord your God am holy and all of that that's one way of dealing with the children of Israel or just children but another way is in order to keep them in line for the long haul one has to also say there are rules and there are consequences and we're in the middle of uh, establishing this relationship um, the question that I want to ask you, Tzvi, is what happens if the children of Israel, how do they read these uh, claims by God, these, these
1: demands by God?
2: Are they saying, oh, yeah, thank you very much, you know, I'll, I'll take this under advisement, or is it frightening for them?
1: Well, I guess, you know, it all depends. I guess on a certain level, uh, as the Tanakh continues, You could say we're obviously not frightened enough because, as you pointed out, the fundamental breaking of this relationship is to find a different king. And we fall into that uh, already in the book of Judges, and it's a perpetual problem. So maybe you could say that uh, it didn't leave its mark in the way that it was intended to. Or, like all relationships, relationships are complicated. They go (laughs) in and out. They go up and down. And maybe it left enough of a mark that we also come back a lot in the book of Judges and other places. So maybe it's, it's a moment that reappears but then goes quiet. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I think it's an ebb and flow. I think that the relationship with God, between God and the Jewish people, has always been an ebb and flow, ups and downs. And this is a point, it could be, where God is responding to a low and trying yet another method of Parenting of being God to this people by saying, I'm going to have to be a li- not a little bit, I'm going to have to be extreme. Just let me give you one more example Please. of an extreme. So there's reference made in the section of Vayikra to citizens having to eat the flesh of their own children. A tro- totally gruesome description of the desperate state of affairs. Awful. It awful. is. The words in the in the text are in uh, verse 29 you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters and indeed this is also declared as one of the tragic outcomes which will befall the citizens of one of these vassal states in the event that a treaty is abrogated the people are told exactly may you eat in your hunger the flesh of your children well I want to ask the children of Israel, did you actually hear God saying that this is going to be the outcome? Did this ever happen in the history of the Israelites, either during their trek through the wilderness or when they established themselves in Eretz Israel? I'm not sure. But sometimes, I can tell you as a parent, sometimes we tip over into the extreme in order to get their attention.
1: Well, wow, so what you're suggesting here is putting it in this context— like those commentators that try to identify word for word where this happened, where that happened, it's all coming true. You're saying that some of this could just be a style of speech. Yes. It doesn't mean that literally people are eating children necessarily. It can be a way that people—you want to know how bad the starvation is going to get? Think of the worst thing you could imagine. That's how bad it's going to get. So it's not prophecy in the sense of predicting— specific events it's meant to instill a mood an awareness or even a fear
2: that's right the same kind of fear that the king wants his vassal uh, state to hear and to obey
1: and yet do you still feel somewhere within the context of Vayikra that i don't know I, i almost want to say would god prefer it otherwise to not need this that somehow this is, this is only there because we can't seem to live up to the idea like, I'm going to take your example, I don't want to have to threaten to ground my child. I want my kid to act responsibly. Does that, does that metaphor work here as well, do you think?
2: It certainly does. I think, though, that there's pessimism, there's optimism, and there's realism. And I think that in our trying to bring up our children— I think to be realist means that there are going to be those times when we're going to move a little bit further than where we wanted to go to say, you know, what, what do we say? This is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. But that's, a, that's not true. But it still is where we go in order to get them to show their willingness to abide by the rules.
1: So that's the realism that in the end higher motivation is not always going to win the day. And even though I, I believe in traffic safety, the reality is if there's no traffic camera on the road and a 2,000 shekel fine, I could go crazy on, uh, on road number six here in Israel and push the speed limit if I'm in a rush or I think it's okay for me. And so maybe you're saying we all need that uh, on some level.
2: That's exactly what I'm saying, is that even though it sounds gruesome we have to hear it in the gruesome way that it's presented and then use our own capabilities to say, I can hear that and then I am going to internalize it in a way that will help me fulfill the ultimate goal, and that is to follow what uh, the, the community needs me to follow in order to make it a successful community.
1: So I want to turn and ask you a really hard question. Which I know would come up if you were teaching this at Pardes, and certainly in a post-Holocaust world, you know, texts that deal with reward and punishment are so loaded now. Uh, And I know I'm I'm not assuming you have an answer, but if you're teaching this and that that theologically loaded question of, you know, are we justifying God doing what God has done to us? Are we saying reward and punishment really happens? Are we saying we really should do mitzvot out of fear? What do you do with all that as a, as a, as a contemporary teacher who's teaching contemporary students?
2: Zvi, what I—you're right, I don't have an answer. But what I do is I try and turn it back to the student and say, can we agree that the way that you hear and read the text that's in front of you, the Torah text, you are doing so through your own lenses, through your own uh, life experience, through a prism that is yours and yours only— So how do you hear these particular words and these particular uh, statements that are found here? Are you able to say, eh, it's just literature and I can ignore it? Or do you see it and say, maybe I need to internalize the intent that is being presented here of, as you mentioned very well, sometimes we do get out of hand and we need to be put back, even though we have the best of intentions. Let me take it for what it is intended, and that is a warning to be on our best and to do our best. Or is it someplace in, the, in between, and I put it back on the student and say, how do you see this? How do you internally react to the words that you see on this text in the text? Are they literal, or are they a genre, as was out there in the ancient Near East,
1: that you can relate to in your own way. So two things occurred to me in what you just said. Number one, that by comparing it, I imagine some people would say, "Why comparing it to other forms of literature out there, we're somehow making the text less sacred. But I think you actually help us with the pshat. In fact, to not take it literally. Yep. In other words, because of these comparisons, understand this is poetic language meant to instill an emotion. Exactly. Not necessarily a, a description of a—it's not a legal code telling me, oh, you do this, this consequence will result necessarily. It's to instill a mood, understand that to violate this relationship— is the worst thing you could possibly do for yourself, for your society, and for your kids. I think. So that's already very helpful, I think, and really important. And I think a great argument for people to study Tanakh with a comparative lens and understand it can add, it can, add, it can make it even more holy in certain ways or more accessible and religiously meaningful. The other thing that occurred to me is that uh, I like consequences, just not for me. <laughs> you know, I love it when, 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 when people break the rules, get punished. It's just, I always want leniency and a second chance. But maybe, I don't know, maybe you could make the case that uh, living in a society where we are aware of consequences is important. It's helpful to to not always see, oh, it's not a big deal or the rules are for other people or, or so what. But maybe that would be beneficial to really believe that every time I break the moral or social code, I'm doing real harm.
2: Yes, both to ourselves, to our community, and potentially to our relationship with the divine. And so I think that's a really good way of putting it, that we need it. I just want to add one last thing, and that is we need it for each of us as individuals within the community, that we need to be able to say, I'm hearing it in a certain way, and for others to be able to say, you can hear it that way, I hear it in a different way, Bringing it together, saying, but as a community, do we have certain standards that we need to keep?
1: I just want to ask you one question before we close, and and maybe you haven't thought about it, but I'm sure that you have. The fact that this all finishes off, like we have this really powerful speech, and then we move to these laws of vows and donations. If you're a Hollywood producer, that's not the script you're going to submit. Would you grant me that? That's not the way the movie can end.
2: I disagree with you, sweetie. I knew
1: that. I knew you had a reason. (laughs) I
2: disagree. Once we have the feeling that our king, king of all kings, is going to take care of us and protect us, we have a confidence as a community to be able to then work within our own system in order to make it work. And God's going to be there overseeing it, but we can then come up with a system, a a working system with donations, with, you know, committees, with people who are working together in order to bring about the success of the community, not with God's help, but with God already having said, we have a relationship. And that relationship is, I will agree to protect you under these circumstances. Now go do your thing. And And, so we have that confidence to be able to do that.
1: And our thing means we have to take a lot of responsibility. That is correct. We have to work at this if we're going to make it. We have to use all the tools at our disposal to live up to this vision. But obviously, God believes we're capable of it or the relationship never would have gotten started. So in a way, it's a compliment here. I believe in you so much, I'm prepared to reward and punish you if you fail.
2: Exactly. Well said.
1: Because you really count. That's right. Okay, I definitely feel a lot better about the whole structure. <laughs> Terrific. So, uh, Howard, anything else you want to share or a closing thought before we uh, end this podcast together?
2: Well, the only other thing is that at the end, as is traditional, God quotes and says, I will remember, I remember th- your ancestors. So it's not just you who are in the desert right now who, are, who is a part of this deal. But it goes back generations, and with God's help, it will continue to go further in the generations, that we will continue to have this kind of positive, as you put it to me, relationship with the divine.
1: But none of us are starting this. We don't come into this starting it fresh, and we don't leave it fresh for anybody else. This is all part of a long, long story. You got it. Okay, I can't think of a better way to finish. Chazak, chazak, venit chazek. Amen. Uh, we're looking forward to the book of uh, Dvarim. Howard, thank you so, about so Bamidbar much. How Bamidbar first? Oh, Bamidbar, that's right. I skipped a whole book. We're going to go to Bamidbar first, sorry. I guess I was excited for the next round of uh, <laughs> Tochacha and Dvarim. Okay. Howard, thank you very, very much. Uh, it was excellent and terrific, and I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting us online at elmod.pardes.org. Be sure to tune in next week as Rabbi Leon Morris and Yiska Smith discuss together Pagashat Bamidbar. Thanks for listening.